our reading this morning is, as Polly has said, uh, Samuel chapter 1. And you can follow that on page 271 uh, of the Pew Bibles, or also, I think, on the screen or on your service sheet. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerahim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penana, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him.
Continuing, continuing with verse 21. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the women stayed at home and stayed and nursed her son until until after he was weaned. She took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood there beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he should be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Thank you, uh, Val and David, for reading. Uh, Let's keep 1 Samuel 1 open as we get underway in a new series uh, in a different bit of the Bible, back from 1 John here to 1 Samuel. Let's pray for God to open our eyes as we turn to his word. Your word is a, a light to our pathway, Heavenly Father, and we pray, therefore, that you would open our eyes as we turn to it this morning. Help us to hear your voice and to respond to you in faith and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think happens when a society leaves God out of the picture? I don't know how you would answer that question. I suppose there is a range of possible answers. Uh, Some might say, Disaster happens. The writing's on the wall when a society leaves God out of the picture. Maybe others would say, no, here's a chance for progress. At last we might begin to move forward if at last we leave God behind. Solzhenitsyn was one of the greatest Russian writers and thinkers of the 20th century. He was born in 1918, a year after Lenin came to power, and he passed a telling verdict on his country. He said this, Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation of the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. Since then, he said, I spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own 
towards the effort of cleansing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Well, I don't make that as a comment particularly on Russia. I think it's just an apt view of social upheaval wherever it happens. This is a a key and telling explanation. We're starting a new series today in the book of 1 Samuel. And it comes at a dark point in Israel's history, on the tail end of the period of the judges. In fact, Samuel, who gives our book his name, was the last of the judges. And as I said, it was a dark time, almost anarchic. The Bible book of Judges says there was no king and God's kingly rule was therefore forgotten and everyone did as they saw fit. It's another strap line for the book of Judges with similarly dire results to those chronicled in Russia by Solzhenitsyn three millennia later. But if Israel had forgotten God, God had not forgotten them. And as one Samuel begins, that simple thought imparts a bright ray of hope in dark days. If we know this bit of the Old Testament, we probably think of it as one of the history books, which is fine. I suppose that's unarguably true. So long as we don't think of it as history in the sense of a detailed account of events in date order, the sort of thing you learn for history, GCSE, or chase up in Wikipedia articles. This section of the Old Testament belonged to what they called the former prophets. It's history, but it's recording God's perspective on the happenings of his covenant people. It's a word of prophecy and explanation and interpretation from God's vantage point. Because because God has not given up on Israel, there is hope. It's going to be the message of the book of 1 Samuel, a new day is dawning. But the beginning, which we had in our readings, is not what we might expect. See, it doesn't give us a picture of the political landscape of Israel or the international scene as the different powers around them jockeyed for the top spot. Instead, the focus is on one very ordinary woman, Hannah. She probably feels like she's completely on her own, But she isn't. In our chapter, she prays. She's in the presence of God. She hasn't forgotten him. And even more important, he has not forgotten her. There are a couple of stages in the chapter for us to follow through. A private agony leading to a public breakthrough. The private agony is captured in a phrase which comes twice. I wonder if you spotted it. It comes twice just in case we missed it the first time. We meet... The three main characters of the the episode, Elkanah, probably got a good family background. Um, That's why you get a whole list of relatives at the start of the book. Uh, Living a few miles north of Jerusalem with two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And these people go to the tabernacle every year. And Peninnah has so many children that they are guaranteed plenty of meat and drink between them. But Hannah gets a double portion. And here's where the reason for her agony becomes apparent in verse 5. Let me read it again. But to Hannah, 
Elkanah gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. In other words, she was barren. She couldn't have children. Perhaps that's why there were two wives in the first place. Out of economic necessity, you needed lots of children to provide for the family, to work the land. So if Hannah couldn't have children, Elkanah thinks, well, I've got to raise a family, so I'll have to marry again. Only that adds to the agony, according to verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And I don't know what sort of form that irritation took. Oh, a double portion for her, spits Panina. Maybe he thinks this year there'll be another mouth for her to feed. Let's hope so, Hannah. Tick-tock, tick-tock, goes the old body clock. Sort of snarky things like that possibly being said. Or worse, who knows. Not being able to have children was bad enough. With life expectancy shorter than it is today, you needed big families to work the family land, and the country needed a ready supply of young people for the armed forces. Not having children was tantamount to not playing your part, and other people were sure to let you know that. So she wasn't just barren, she was bullied. But there's an added factor to the agony here. Why could she not have children? Remember, it's a word of prophecy. It's got God's perspective. And this account says it wasn't just biology, pure and simple. There was more to it. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Do you get that? Well, just in case you didn't, it says it again. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. But you see, if he did it, then that at least opens the door to an answer being possible. If it was the Lord who'd closed her womb, then Hannah can ask God to take action again for her to conceive. So let's fast forward to her prayer. Because there's a name used for God which comes for the first time in the Bible here in Hannah's prayer. I'm reading from uh, a bit in the middle of verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty... If you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, the name for God, which comes for the very first time in the Bible there, is Lord Almighty. The old translations used to put it like this, the Lord of hosts, God of the armies, In other words, this God has angels lined up to do his bidding, supernatural armies, and the infinite power and resources at God's disposal are there to be put to work in the lives of his people. So Hannah's praying. She's absolutely real in her prayers. She feels the agony when she prays, so much so that Eli the priest doesn't know what to do with it. Are you drunk, woman? She's real, isn't she? Maybe sometimes we could take a leaf out of her book and be real with God. But the Lord of hosts is real too. And he is more than equal to her private agony. So in Hannah's case, barrenness and bullying don't become barriers to her prayer. They are the spiritual rocket fuel that get her praying. She doesn't say, what's the point of praying? My situation's impossible. She says, Humanly speaking, the situation is impossible, 
but it's not impossible for God. So she might feel like a nobody if her identity was tied up with having children. What's the point of living, she might be thinking. And I suppose we might ask just the same question for different reasons today. It might not be the size of my family that matters, but the size of my bank balance. Or I feel my life doesn't count if I don't get recognition for whatever it might be, for academic success, for my good looks, whatever, whatever it might be. As if that's where some other area where my self-worth and my identity is found. But Hannah got this right. She understood that forgotten, harassed, unimportant people on their knees talking to God are powerful because he's powerful. And the broken heart of one obscure woman matters to the Lord of hosts, to the God of the galaxies. It's amazing, isn't it? So there's the private agony, but let's move on because of that prayer to the episode's second stage, a public breakthrough. Private agony, there's one woman in the presence of God, and a public breakthrough, an advance for the whole nation. I want to suggest. Let's look at that prayer again, verse 11 I'm reading from. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And that last little bit is significant. It's a throwback to an obscure law in the book of Numbers where a vow could be made which set someone apart as, they called it, a Nazarite, a special servant of God. And we might need to do a bit of recalibrating of the way we think here. Ordination as a priest, we've got sort of categories of thoughts in our minds, haven't we? Well, ordination as a priest was not possible for anyone and everyone in the Old Testament. Ordination was tied to tribe. And family lines. You couldn't just rock up to the temple one day and say, God is calling me to be a priest. I have a vacation. Not if you were from the wrong family. You had to be in direct line to Moses and Aaron. Unless, oh yeah, there was just one other route to a dedicated priestly type of life as a Nazarite, where you took a vow, complete with hair uncut and holding off alcohol. And you could be set apart for God like that. And Hannah, before her son is born, takes that decision. He will be God's child from birth. And so it proves to be. Now, she wasn't bargaining with God. The way she would prayed makes that clear. She wasn't saying, you give me a child and I'll give him to you. Sort of a, a quid pro quo. Uh, we might have thought, well, that'd be a vow that she could one day forget later on. And you get that funny detail that she doesn't go to the temple with Samuel till he's weaned. And I don't know whether people were looking on thinking, well, maybe she'll conveniently forget about that promise that she made a while back. But she doesn't. Probably even harder, if you think about it, to give the child up when the process of maternal attachment has really developed. But off he goes with his um, suit of clothes. That's a, a bit that comes later on in the story for this young three-year-old. He was set apart from birth as God's child. 
And when she prayed, therefore, from the vantage point of what happened, I think you can work this out, it was never a case of give me a child for whatever reason, to shut up Panina, or give me a child for me to enjoy, but give me a child for your sake, Lord. In other words, I'm not building my life on my hope for a child and a family, but on you, God, and on your mission. My child is not my life. I give him to you. So look what she said to Eli three years on when she finally went back to the temple and saw him again. This is verse 27. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he shall be given over to the Lord. And that, of course, is the ray of light that is dawning. The name Samuel means asked of God. She's asking for more than a child. She's asking for God's kingdom to advance after the dark ages. And her prayers are answered more than she could ever imagine by the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies. Five children in the Bible are conceived by special acts of God. I wonder if you can call any of them to mind if you're a Bible student. Isaac, born to Abraham and Sarah. Jacob and Esau, born to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Samson, in the book of Judges. He was also a Nazareth, by the way, Nazarite. Uh, John the Baptist, that's five I've got down there. In each case, it seemed like the situation was, humanly speaking, impossible. Only God could bring that birth about. And in each case, there was more going on than the private agony of a woman being sorted out by God. Now, I said that there were five children conceived by special acts of God, and some of you are getting jumpy. Of course, that is not right, because this applies to Jesus as well, except in his case, the supernatural birth was different. It wasn't that his mother was barren. It was that there was no earthly father. Even more impossible. Even more a situation in which only a specific act of God could overrule the laws of nature. Mary's agony, I guess, was rather different to Hannah's or Sarah's, or her cousin Elizabeth's. But she surrendered her son to God's purposes as well, even if, for Mary, that would ultimately mean the blood and nails of the cross for her son, the spiritual agony of him being cut off from his heavenly father when he died for our sins, as we're going to remember in communion later on. But the direction of travel is already set here in Hannah's Prayer, the private agony, and then a public answer, a breakthrough in God's purposes being set forward. And maybe we ought to just hold and and acknowledge that that same pattern is true and holds good today as well. Private agony, often a public breakthrough, especially if we pray it through. Hudson Taylor was one of the pioneers of the modern missionary movement. He was founder of the China Inland Mission. He grew up in very modest circumstances in Barnsley in Yorkshire in the 19th century. But before he was born, his godly father prayed a sort of Hannah-like prayer. 
prayed that if God gave him a son, that son would be used to reach the millions in spiritual darkness in China. He never actually told Hudson about that prayer until Hudson was in his mid-twenties when he'd already been for seven years in China. Now, I'm not saying that we should pray that all our children or grandchildren or the children passing through All Saints Kids would one day end up onto the mission field at some point. I'm not saying we should pray that way necessarily. But what a difference it would make if we didn't think of children and grandchildren and godchildren, children of the church, as ours, but gave them to God for his purposes. Or if children are not the focus of our prayers, whatever else is, give that ambition, that desire, that focus of our longings and agony to God, knowing that he hears the cry of the forgotten, the powerless, the needy, and he can answer it beyond what we can even imagine, a much bigger, loftier purpose, one truly worth living for. So remember Hannah, remember Mary, remember Samuel, given to God from birth, and supremely, let's remember Jesus Christ, obedient unto death for us. Let's pray. We thank you that you are the God who hears and answers prayer, and we thank you for your amazing power, the power of the armies of heaven at your disposal to answer prayers. We thank you for your amazing plans, Father, that uh, no life is an accident, no life is unimportant, but you have plans and purposes for us, and your great plan and purpose is to bring honor and glory to your Son, Jesus Christ. And we long for that to be achieved, even in our struggles, Lord, that you would work uh, your amazing power in our weakness. We pray for the dark ages to shine with your light. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The bread and the wine, as Simon has said, that we will share, um, will remind us of that sacrifice that um, Jesus made on the cross for us. And the words of our next song also do that. So please stand to sing, Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. Once again, I look upon the cross where you die. 
of the heavens will one day fall. But for now, I marvel at the saving grace and I'm full of praise once again. I'm full of praise once again. Take a seat. <coughs> Going to take communion up at the uh, the rail at the far end of the church building in a moment. We invite to come to the rail uh, for communion. All who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you're not a member of this church, you're welcome to join us. If you'd prefer not to receive communion, just keep your hands down at that point and the uh, I'll gladly pray uh, with you and for you. Um, if you need gluten-free bread, just make it clear to me and we'll make sure that we can provide that. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, in your tender mercy you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to rescue us. He made there a full and perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He commands us to share bread and wine in memory of his precious death until he comes again. Hear our prayer, merciful Father, that we who receive this bread and wine to remember his death and suffering may be partakers of his body and blood. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Amen.